This is a recording of the Braille Institute's Vision Share Conference held in Thousand Oaks, California on November 7th, 2008. Welcome to this really, really wonderful event. And my name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and I'm the Consulting Director of Low Vision at the Braille Institute of America. And I'm also the Chief of Low Vision Services at the Center for the Partially Sighted in Santa Monica, California. And also we have a new office in San Luis Obispo as well as in the San Fernando Valley. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is some of the things that I've learned about how to live your life more easily with being low vision. Each day when patients come to the Center for the Partially Sighted, there's not a day when a patient will say to me, Dr. Bill, how do you do it? How do you live being low vision? You look like you're so happy, you're cheerful, you seem to be doing so well. You don't even look blind. You're amazing. How do you do it? But in reality, I'm no different than the other 10 or 12 million people in the United States who are visually impaired. When I first started to have some problems with my own vision a few years ago, it started in the left eye. And when my left eye started to be a little bit blurred, I thought it was just maybe I was a little tired. I thought I need a little more rest. I was in somewhat of a denial stage because I just said, you know, if I go to bed a little earlier, if I eat a little healthier, if I take some vitamins, everything will go back to the way that it was before. But it didn't. And as my vision started to worsen in that left eye, I then started to have problems with driving. When I started to have these types of problems with my depth perception, as I was driving, I would feel a bit anxious. I started to notice that I was driving more slowly. I was driving in the slow lane. I didn't want to drive as often at night. Then, when it started to hit my right eye, as my right eye started to suffer from some of these problems, I then realized, you know what, this is real. I went to see so many different types of eye doctors, searching to see if there is something that might be able to fix my vision. But unfortunately, being an eye doctor myself, I knew that this particular diagnosis of this retinal degeneration was something that I feared most. Of almost all the diseases that one could be diagnosed with, this condition of what's called rod cone degeneration was something that I knew that there was no treatment for. And at that time, I did have that feeling of shock. I was scared, and I'm certain that many of you have felt that way too when your doctor told you that there's nothing that could be done. At that point in time, I had to make a lot of decisions. You know, I was married, my wife and I, we had two young children, and I started to worry, how are we going to survive? How are we going to be able to live? Are we going to lose our home? What's going to happen? How are the kids going to feel of having a disabled dad? Are they going to be embarrassed of me? Are things going to be so different and so difficult that it causes emotional stress and such on them? And after I then was forced to sell my practice, I started to then stay at home, and, and my life really changed. Instead of working six, six and a half days a week, I was having all of this free time, and this free time really was something that was really terrible. I know that many people have told me this, as that they have retired. They said, you know, I have so much free time, retirement isn't really what I thought it would be, especially with vision impairment. And for myself, as I had the low vision, I couldn't drive anymore. I couldn't just go to the mall and walk around and go to Best Buy or Home Depot and all those other types of places. I definitely couldn't ask my wife to take me to Home Depot and look at tools. That wouldn't go over very well. And what we found was that with time, 
I found myself becoming just more and more isolated. People would call. They would actually ask me if I wanted to go out. And I didn't want to go out with my friends who tried to cheer me up. I didn't want to go out because I was too embarrassed that I might have to hold on to them as I was walking. What if I tripped? If I had to grab their arm to walk from one place to another, maybe somebody might make fun of us. They might say that, you know, we're kind of a couple of funny guys or something like that. I actually went to the extent of changing my phone number. I didn't want any more people to call. My wife, I remember, was one Sunday and my kids were home and I was sitting in my backyard just kind of feeling sorry for myself. And she said, you know, let's take the kids someplace. And I said, no, 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 why don't you guys go? I, I, I really am not feeling well. And, I, you know, I didn't want my kids or anybody to know really what I was thinking. But I said, you guys go. I, I just don't feel well. And they went. They went. They had a good day. And that whole time that they went, all that I kept thinking to myself was, how could they leave me here? How could they leave me here? What is going on with this? The same thing actually escalated. I started to wonder, how come none of my friends are calling me? You know, I used to take them to the Laker games. I used to take them to the Raider games. I used to take them all over the place. And my friends, they're not even calling. Well, I was a fool who changed the phone number, but I still kept feeling sorry for myself. And I really became in such a rut. I was just in, in the worst situation. If you could think of every negative type of word to say, that was me. I was angry. I was depressed. I felt lonely. I felt sorry for myself. I didn't want to be around people, but yet I wanted people to take care of me. You know, and it even got to a point, I remember one, one evening I was fixing the cable. You know, I was trying to fix the cable line from our TV, and it was at night, and I was trying to hammer a, a nail into the, the joist, and it fell, and I couldn't find it. And I had to call my wife, June. I said, June, can you find this? And, you know, she was looking on the ground, and she couldn't find it either, and I was just so frustrated with everything. And I even said something, which is one of the worst things that I think I might have ever said. I said, you know, why didn't this happen to you? There was no dinner that night, you know. <laughs> but my frustration was just to the point where I was so bitter, I was so angry that I took everything out on everybody else. And in, in my mind, as I was sitting there by myself thinking about things all the time, I said, you know, why Why is God doing this to me? Here I am. I'm one of the pioneers in the area of low vision. I've been treating children and adults with low vision for years. People are coming to see me from throughout the world. You know, I, I just said, I could be more productive if I am helping people as a doctor. I used to start to think, I'm going to have to no longer be in the limelight. I used to love. My hobby was going to work. No longer will I be able to treat the children of the stars and the celebrities and the dignitaries of the world and when I sold my practice that was a very difficult thing too because suddenly people were asking my partner all the questions no more were they asking me what was wrong with this child or no longer were they asking me of my advice and I felt as though you know I really wasn't needed anymore and to be quite frank I had those same feelings that many people with low vision feel is that I can't go on I don't want to live. I used to even think to the point, you know what, I am so much more valuable dead than alive because I have life insurance. You know, those types of thoughts even came into my mind. So 
This went on for many, many months, and, and, and one day, uh, my, my older brother, he had called me up, and he said, Hey, Bill, can you do me a favor, and can you go with me down to UCLA Hospital? And I said, You know, what do you need me to go down there for you? You know, I, I'm busy. He goes, No, really, I do need you. I don't need you for anything, but you just got to sit in the car seat because I need a dummy or something so I could go into the carpool lane. So... So being being the nice brother that I am, I said, okay, I'll be your dummy. And so during that same time that I was going through through my difficulties, my older brother, he was actually going through his own difficulties. He had suffered from a heart attack, and he lost 70% of the function of his heart. And so we were going down to UCLA that day to see his cardiologist. And as he, I was waiting for him in the waiting room of the doctors, and the doctor, I could overhear him talking to my brother, telling him, you know, I don't know how long you have to live. He says, we could try to get you a heart transplant. We'll put you on a heart transplant list, but, you know, I just I just don't know. So, as we were going home, I started to ask my brother, I said, is, 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 that, is that right? I mean, is this the first time that he told you about this? And he said, no, we, we, I've, I've known this. And I said, but, God, you seem so normal. You seem so regular. By looking at you, nobody would know that there's anything wrong with you. You know, how come you're not angry? You suffered this heart attack because your doctor told you you had indigestion when, in fact, you were having a heart attack. Aren't you angry? And what he told me, he says, you know, being angry is not going to change any of this. Every one of us, our life is limited. And for me, I know that my life is definitely more limited than others. So I'm going to just really value each day, each hour, and each minute because it might be my last. And so I started to think about that. And I just said, you know, what a wonderful attitude he has. I, I just really didn't know how he had that. And this whole time I kept thinking about myself, how I can't see very well and I can't play basketball anymore or maybe I won't be able to see what my daughter looks like if she ever gets married or, you know, all of these things I was thinking about myself. And at the meantime, I could see where my brother is just hanging on and enjoying every single day. And it made me realize that my own particular fears, my own psychological set, and my attitude was actually causing me to waste my life away. So from that point in time, I realized, you know what, Bill? You have to change your attitude. You just have the wrong attitude. You have just the worst attitude. And so I started to think, and I started to really evaluate myself. And my brother, we would then start to go to breakfast and we'd have a lot of different discussions. And one of the things that helped my brother with his ability to actually reconcile with his whole situation was he, he started to go to church. and He started talking about church and different types of things like that. And church may not be for everybody, but it definitely was something for him. And I said, you know what, it's good enough for him. I'll go try it. And I started to meet other people at church. And I started to realize that everybody... No matter who you are, they all have problems. I started to think about all of these movie stars and celebrities and dignitaries that would come to my office for me to treat their kids. They had their own problems because for their kids to come to see me, their kids had to have certain types of problems such as reading disabilities, dyslexia. So I realized that everybody has problems and there's certain things that we actually have no control of. We don't have really any control if there's going to be a terrorist attack. We don't have any control if there's going to be an earthquake. You know, I think every day we're about due for an earthquake. 
When I was a kid, I lived in Silmar, and we had an earthquake in 71. And then we moved over to the Northridge in 94. We had an earthquake. So the moral of the story is I'm going to be moving out here to Thousand Oaks, and you guys better move away. <laughs> but there's so many things that we can't control. We can't really control how others are going to behave. I can't control what the traffic is going to be like. I can't control if it's going to be windy. I can't control the fact that I'm getting older and getting gray hairs. I can't control so many things. But there is something that I can control. And I can control how it is that I behave. I can control my own attitude. So the first step in terms of living with low vision is that you really want to look at yourself and take a good accounting of what you're all about. You have to realize that your vision problem that you are experiencing, it's not only about you. It's not only about you. I remember one time my son was telling me, he said, you know, Dad, it really isn't all about you and your vision. This is something that other people have problems as well. And when you come to realize that we all have our strengths and weaknesses, we can look at ourselves and we can see what would we like to be in a better way? What could we do to improve ourselves? It could be something just as simple as opening a door for another person or smiling at a person that you don't know or waving hi to somebody as you're driving or walking down the street. But by making a better attitude, I think this is going to be the first step. For over 17 years, I was serving and treating patients who had low vision. And one of the things that I would say to myself is I used to say, you know what, if I ever become low vision, I certainly am not going to be bitter like most of these patients. And I'll tell you, most of the patients that we see at the Center for the Parts Decided, these are some very, very bitter people. And I said to myself, I never want to be like that. And when I first lost my vision, I was ten times worse. I, I was the worst of the worst. I had seen so many times where there are people who are visually impaired or blind, and many times there's a sense that they feel everybody needs to change for them. Granted, it's very, very helpful if society understands what we as visually impaired people need, but on the other hand, everybody doesn't have to change everything as their life to meet our needs. So I started to think about how can I change my attitude, and one of the things that I first did was I started to think, what are all the things that I am grateful for? I just got on my computer and I started to type out every single thing that I was grateful for. And I started to do that every morning when I woke up. And the first thing that always comes to my mind each morning when I wake up is I am so grateful that my family is okay. That nobody got sick last night. Nobody had a seizure. Nobody had a heart attack. And number two... I'm also grateful that there was no earthquake last night. Usually we find that most of these earthquakes, they happen so early in the morning and such, but I'm just so grateful for that. And when I think about these things, I think, man, this is great. I then get into the shower, take a shower, and I'm just so grateful to be able to feel that the hot water is working and my water heater didn't break. I'm so grateful that there's a towel there so I don't have to go searching for a towel. I'm so grateful that we have soap and I could wash my hair and not have to have an itchy head all day. So I started to think of all the things that I'm grateful for throughout the morning. And this really helped me to have such a better idea of what I wanted to do through the day. 
The second thing that I did in terms of trying to change my attitude is that I set small goals. I would say to myself, what is it that I want to achieve today? And I would sit and write down two or three things that I wanted to do. It would be something as simple as, I'm going to start exercising again. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to buy a treadmill. And I'm going to start to run on a treadmill because I can't run on the street as well anymore. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to learn how to use a computer with some of these special types of programs such as these that Aaron has here today. I'm going to learn how to use the magnification software program so I can actually see the computer using this magnifier. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start to use a closed circuit television and with a closed circuit television I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to look at every photograph that I have. That was one of the things that I did as my vision started to get worse and reality set in I said I took every single photograph that I had and I said I'm going to cherish every one of these because I don't know how long I'll be able to see these. So I put it underneath the CCTV machine and I looked at every one and these kind of images they just kind of burnt into my mind. So I would do little things like that every day and as I did these things I started to feel more productive and I stopped thinking about how bad things were for me. I started to think that I could do these things. I could enjoy the moment just like everyone else. So really, really work on trying to think of how your attitude is and what can you do to change it. The second thing is get information. The second step to being successful with living with low vision is you have to be able to get information. Now for all of you here, I don't really need to tell all of you that because all of you are here. You are all here to get information from Jan Merrill from the VA. It's going to be Miss Wolf from Department of Rehab. You're going to look about getting some of these telephones from CTAP. There's all of these different types of resources available, but you need to get as much information possible. The first step in trying to get information is that you do need to understand the differences between all of the different types of eye care professionals. Many times people, they get optometrists and ophthalmologists and all of these words confused. Some of my family, they even say the word ophthalmologist, you know. They just really don't understand that there's going to be a difference between ophthalmologists and optometrists and all of these different types of words out there. But the first thing, with a vision disease, you really want to be seen by an ophthalmologist. And what an ophthalmologist is, these are medical doctors. They go to medical school for four years. After that, they do a residency in what's called ophthalmology. And during the residency, that is when they learn how to actually diagnose and surgically treat different types of visual conditions. Some of these ophthalmologists go to school after that, and this is what's called a fellowship. Some of these doctors will then specialize in the retina. So they might be a retina specialist who specializes in macular degeneration. Another person might specialize just in glaucoma. Another one might just specialize in cataracts. So it's very important that you see an ophthalmologist who specializes in your precise condition because otherwise you may not be getting the treatment that you need. There have been some just tremendous, tremendous advances in medical technology over the past five years. And we now know that there are now treatments that can treat macular degeneration specifically the wet form of macular degeneration with different types of medications. Avastin, Lucentis, these are different types of medications that could stop the eye from leaking blood and fluid. 
We also know that there are now new treatments for glaucoma so that we can surgically remove different types of particles that are blocking the flow of the fluid in the eye and with this type of surgery the pressure could be reduced and many people can be preventing their vision loss by seeing a ophthalmologist who specializes in glaucoma. We have other types of treatments now where there are new different types of steroidal medications that could be injected into the eyes of people who have diabetic retinopathy. And I had a patient just two weeks ago that came in to see us and the first thing that we noted was that inside the eye there was blood and fluid. So we referred this patient with diabetes to a retina specialist. His vision when he came in to see us, he was classified as being legally blind. Legal blindness means that with both eyes open, with the best pair of glasses, you can only see the, B, see the big E, the 2200 size letter. Well, this gentleman had never been seen by a retinal specialist, so we referred him to a retina specialist. He injected him with this particular type of medication, and with a steroid, his vision improved to 2025. This guy was so grateful, he told me, he said, Dr. Bill, I'm going to go to Vegas, and if I win, you're going to get half the pot. He called me up the next week. He said, I lost 500 bucks. You owe me 250 <laughs> <laughs> So you do want to be seen by a ophthalmologist who specializes in your particular type of condition. If you have a HMO and they are just allowing you to be seen by the general ophthalmologist, you want to ask that general ophthalmologist for a referral. Now, in many cases, the ophthalmologist will say, there's nothing more that I can do. And when the ophthalmologist tells you that there's nothing more that he or she can do, that doesn't mean that that's the end of the road. What that means is that you then need to look for other types of resources. The next step would be to be seen by a optometrist who specializes in low vision. Now this is really something that's kind of hard to come by because fewer than 1% of all of the eye care professionals in the United States specialize in the field of low vision. But there are both optometrists and ophthalmologists who specialize in low vision. Now what an optometrist is, optometrists are what are called the primary eye care professional. What an optometrist does they go to four years of undergraduate school to get their bachelor's degree. We then go to four years of optometry school, and during those four years of optometry school, we learn how to diagnose and treat different types of eye conditions. Eye diseases such as macular degeneration, glaucoma, retinitis pigmentosa. We learn how to fit people with glasses and contact lenses, and we do different types of treatments such as vision therapy. One of the things that we're going to be seeing more and more of is people coming back from the war who have suffered from explosions and these explosions have caused traumatic head injury and this is where the visual parts of the brain have been damaged so they don't see normally so low vision optometrists they specialize in treating anybody who has vision problems that might be related to the eyes or to the brain and what we do is low vision optometrists we actually do what's called a functional vision assessment when you go to many ophthalmology offices, they will check how well you see. They'll put up the big E at the end of the room. You know, I've had this over and over and over as I was seeing the retina doctors. And that's pretty much all that they would do. They would measure whether or not I could see that E across the room with my right eye or with my left eye. But they really wouldn't test things such as my color vision, my depth perception, 
How do I see in the very bright light? How do I see in the dark? How do I see colors? How do I see different shades of gray? Well, these are very, very important visual skills that affect how you function in life. There are many times that we'll see people who have retinitis pigmentosa, for example, and they may have 20-20 eyesight, but you see the way that they walk, and they're tripping and stumbling and falling, and that's because they don't have night vision, they don't have good peripheral vision, and they don't have contrast vision. We also see people who have macular degeneration, and their vision might be fairly good. Their vision might be 20-40 or 20-50, but yet they say that they can't see steps and curbs. They say that they can't identify their medications. They say that they can't see photographs. And this is because the macular degeneration has affected their color vision. It's affected their depth perception. It's affected their contrast vision. So what low vision optometrists do, we determine the patient's strengths and weaknesses, and based on that, we can then design specialized glasses, contact lenses, and different types of low vision aids that can enhance those particular types of weaknesses. For example, many people with macular degeneration, they have reduced contrast sensitivity. What that means is they could see things quite well if it's a black letter on a white piece of paper. But how many things are truly black on a real clean white piece of paper? If you read a newspaper, it's gray on gray. If you're walking up and down stairs, concrete steps and curbs, you got gray on gray. Almost everything that you're seeing as you're driving, you're going to see gray concrete. You're going to see that the asphalt is gray. So contrast sensitivity is something that's very, very important. And what we find is that many times by prescribing specialized types of filters, a person's vision, their contrast will improve. And so I know today that Joe from Eschenbach, they have some samples of just some shields that will fit over on top of your glasses. Many people with macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, they do very, very well with a yellow, a amber, or a brown type of filter. Your low vision optometrist is also going to help you to preserve your vision. What we do is we tell our patients to check their vision on a daily basis with something called an Amsler grid. This is something that looks like graph paper. You could just go get a piece of graph paper, cover one eye, look at that graph paper, and if you notice that there's areas that the lines are wavy, then that means that you might be having a leak inside your macula. You need to go see your retina specialist right away. We also recommend that our patients are taking different types of vitamins. What we know is that there was a study called the ARED study, and what this national study found was that people with moderate to severe macular degeneration that their vision was either stabilized or even in some cases it improved when they took this particular type of vitamin that consisted of beta carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E, and zinc. Now one of the things if you're interested in looking for some of these types of vitamins you might just want to contact your optometrist or your ophthalmologist and ask them if they do have some samples of something called Preservision. Preservision is an over-the-counter vitamin and it comes in two formulas and it's really important that you understand this because if you're a smoker you want to take the formula for smokers this is really really important for a couple of reasons is that people who smoke or who have smoked if they take beta carotene which develops into vitamin A it can cause you to develop lung cancer okay so if you are going to be taking any of these kinds of vitamins consult with your doctors 
We also tell our patients to stop smoking because we know that smoking is the strongest predictor for people to be getting macular degeneration. It's even stronger than being exposed to the direct sunlight. In years past, there were many theories that thought that the sunlight, especially the ultraviolet and the blue colors of light, it would cause significant damage to the retinas of people with retinitis pigmentosa and macular degeneration. But we now know that smoking is a much stronger predictor. Speaking about this type of concern about the ultraviolet light, we still do recommend that people will wear these types of sunglasses that filter out the ultraviolet light when they're outdoors, but most sunglasses and most clear glasses do filter out the ultraviolet light. Another type of a controversy is a concern about something called full spectrum lighting. One of the things that you can now buy are light bulbs that are called full spectrum and the intention of full spectrum is that it's supposed to simulate the sunlight. By having this type of simulation of sunlight there is the ultraviolet and the blue light. But what we do know now is that there really are not conclusive studies that show that these types of light bulbs will promote vision loss in people with macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, or retinitis pigmentosa. In fact, some of the studies have suggested that being under a full spectrum fluorescent light, like in a building such as this, for eight hours is about equivalent to being outdoors in the sunlight for one minute. So when people get overly concerned about the concerns of full spectrum fluorescent lighting, I don't know that you really have to be overly concerned but you can talk to your doctor who can tell you whether or not you should or should not be under that type of lighting. If your doctor does tell you that you should avoid it because of your particular retinal condition, then you can be seen by a low vision optometrist who can design these particular types of glasses for you. The low vision optometrist will also design customized types of glasses that can help you to be able to read, to be able to cook, to be able to write, and even in some cases many people with low vision can even drive with these specialized types of low vision aids. Many people they think that low vision is synonymous with just buying a magnifier. Going to Home Depot, going to Office Depot, going to Thrifty Drug and getting a magnifier, they say well I've tried a magnifier it doesn't work. Well most of the magnifiers that you can purchase in a department store these are magnifiers that might be two to three times magnification. Many times they have a lot of distortion and one of the things that people often do incorrectly is that they often buy the largest magnifier possible. While the larger the magnifier, the weaker the strength. So when people buy these page magnifiers that are like a sheet, they usually don't get enough magnification and as a result they can't read very well. Your doctor will be able to tell you what type of lighting, what kind of power you need, and virtually any power that's available in a magnifying glass can be made in glasses. The drawback with having it in glasses though is that you do have to bring it closer and many people don't feel as comfortable holding the print close that way so in such cases the doctor may even prescribe something called a telescopic glass. These are glasses that have a very tiny telescope in it which is very similar to what surgeons use or what your dentist might use and this is something that people who like to do arts and crafts or who might want to paint and draw or just read they can use these types of telescopic glasses. These telescopic glasses are also legal for driving in the state of California as well as many other states 
to be allow, allowing a person with low vision to drive. In California, the DMV basically states that if your vision with glasses measures 2200 in the better eye, you are then disqualified. You cannot attempt to take a road test. On the other hand, if your vision is better than 2200, you can then take that particular type of road test and you will have to have a special vision exam performed by your doctor. This doctor will then fill out this form and tell the DMV what is your peripheral vision, what is your depth perception, what is your contrast vision. All of these different specific visual skills will be described in this form and then the DMV will allow you to take a road test. So in some cases the DMV may state that you have to use a telescopic glasses to drive and in other cases they will state that you do not have to use that telescopic pair of glasses to drive. So even though you may be visually impaired the question of driving is not something that is completely out of order. And what we do is that after we prescribe these types of visual aids for our patients we teach them how to use it and then we will refer them in many cases to different types of agencies that work with people on their driving. For example in the San Fernando Valley, Northridge Hospital has a very intensive low vision drivers program where people could learn to drive with these types of bioptic telescopes. There's a lot of other types of information that you want to try to get. If you're still having difficulties with motivating yourself, I found it very helpful to get different types of books. I would get books from the Braille Institute. And if you are classified as being legally blind by your low vision doctor, you can then qualify many of these different types of resources. If you're having difficulties with dialing the telephone, the CTAP, California Telephone Access Program, they can actually provide you with a large print phone. They can provide you with a cordless phone. And with these particular types of telephone services, you can access all kinds of different material. The most common complaint that people say that they can't do, they say that they miss reading. Well, I miss reading too. You know, I used to be such a cheap guy. I'd go to Barnes & Noble. I'd never buy a book. I would just kind of walk around and read books in there. And I couldn't do it anymore. But I found there's another way that a cheapskate like me could get books. And that would be through the Braille Institute. They'll send you a machine. You could listen to these different types of books. And there were a lot of different types of books that I listened to that were very, very inspirational and uplifting. And they motivated me to go ahead and do things. I read a book that was written by Christopher Reeves. You might remember the actor. He was Superman and he fell off of a horse and became a quadriplegic. But it was something when I read his book and, and learned about how hard he was struggling to live each day. It made me really say, you know what, I need to enjoy life to the same, 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 same level. I also read different types of books that would help me in terms of with learning how to get different types of things done. I found out that I could actually access telephone newspapers. My doctor signed me up for a particular form and this was for the NFB Newsline. And with NFB Newsline I can access over 250 newspapers on my telephone. So the way that I get things done I'd go on the treadmill, connect my cordless telephone to a headphone and I would listen to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and I wouldn't have to even you know leave home to try to find these things so I was able to read again I also then learned about different types of organizations that would offer different things called podcasts 
where I could go on my computer and I could listen to tutorials to learn how to use a computer as a blind person. I would listen to podcasts that would teach me how to cook and I learned to cook using a microwave oven and using different types of techniques. So one of the things that I encourage you to do is to visit one organization. It's a nonprofit that is called Airs LA, A-I-R-S-L-A. And that stands for the Audio Internet Reading Service of Los Angeles. And they are the people who are actually hosting many of the different types of educational seminars that the Braille Institute puts on, the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And there's also a series in Airs LA that I invite you to listen to. And it is called Living with Low Vision. Years ago, the Braille Institute put together some tremendously effective programs called Sound Solutions. And with these particular types of recordings, it helps you to learn how to cook or how to sort your clothes. You know, some of the things that's very, very helpful. My wife said, you know, Bill, you can't just go around wearing black pants and white shirt for the rest of your life just because you don't have to sort your clothes that way. But, you know, for me, it was easier. It doesn't matter what I look like, you know. Instead of being embarrassed of putting on a burgundy shoe and a black shoe, I just got every shoe a black shoe, every sock a black sock, every pants black pants. And what I do is that with this combination, I could just change the tie. So, you know, it makes it a lot easier. But I learned through the sound solutions different ways of labeling your clothing, that you could label your clothing with safety pins and such. And I think that later on today, you might want to speak with Anita Arakara, Arakawa, you know, she's, she's got a Japanese last name, and I can't even say it being Japanese, huh? <laughs> but Anita Arakawa and Dunya, they used to both uh, work for us at the Center for the Parsi Society before they took a position at the Veterans. So they used to run our independent living skills program. So you need to realize that there are specialists, teachers for the visually impaired, teachers such as Anita who have a master's degree in vision rehabilitation, and they can teach you all these different things. How do you cook? How do you sort your clothes? How do you shave? You know, I find for a lot of people they have difficulties with shaving. They might just prefer to use an electric razor compared to using a, a bladed razor. As far as combing your hair and things like that, there's different types of techniques. You know, for myself, I just learned to cut my own hair. Believe it or not, you know, you might say, how do you cut your own hair? Well, I just covered up. You know, for those of you who might be very low vision, can't see my hair here, I just cover it with a ton of gel. So it, it, it covers up all the flaws and things like that. And, you know, the reflection of my black hair, it covers up the gray hairs and things. So there's so many different types of people out there who can help you. We know that there's other types of things, such as if you're having difficulties identifying your medications. There's medication labelers. There's different types of real simple techniques where you could put rubber bands, one rubber band around one medication. If you're taking glaucoma, we will tell the patient to put one rubber band around one medication, two rubber bands around the, the eye drop that you have to take twice a day. There's tr many, many different types of strategies that are available. So you want to speak with people who are teachers for the visually impaired. You might also consult with different occupational therapists. There are now many occupational therapists who are learning to do this type of vision rehabilitation. Another thing that could be also very, very helpful is to seek the assistance of counseling. Now for me, I said there's no way that I'm going to see a shrink. 
you know all of our staff at at, at the center for the party said said you know dr bill gosh you know i think it'd be nice maybe you could have lunch with pam and i'm thinking no okay i've never had lunch with pam in my life pam's a psychologist they think that i'm crazy <laughs> and i didn't i did not go i said no i'm doing fine but what happened was that i did go to a, a different type of a meeting and this was the Cal State Northridge Technology Meeting, and I and I met so many people who were also low vision, and I saw so many other people who were low vision. I talked to them, and I learned so many tricks as to how to do things. I learned what was the best software that they used if they wanted to scan something. I learned what was the best magnification program. I learned what was the best screen reading program. And you know, what I have found is that by speaking to other people who are visually impaired, I learned more than everything that I ever learned in eye doctor school in all of those years. People who are going through it, they have the solutions. One of the things that was really very helpful, I remember I was talking to this one gentleman and I said, you know, one of the things when I go to restaurants, I'm a little bit embarrassed because sometimes I go to a restaurant, I can't read the menu, the waiters, they see me walking in here with a cane, and they're always over there, they're asking my wife, what does he want? What would he like to have? You know? And I said, God, sometimes it just makes me so angry. I feel like saying something. And he just said to me, just tell the guy. He says, well, she can't talk, and she would like to have a Caesar salad, and I'd like to have this. <laughs> so by by making a joke at a lot of things, it, a lot of times it helps people because many people have never encountered a person with low vision because many people with low vision were like I was when I first became low vision. They're isolated. They don't leave the home. So by having a good sense of humor, a lot of times that we can enlighten many of the general public who have never been exposed to a person with low vision. So I do recommend that you do speak with other people who are low vision come into meetings such as this support groups actually talking to other people and if you don't know of somebody who has a condition that's similar to yours speak with Mary or speak with Steve at Braille Institute and they might be able to find another person who has a similar condition and you can actually meet each other and have coffee or just talk or just share your stories with each other for many people counseling individual counseling is extremely helpful there's many people who will come and they will ask for that. There are psychologists who are actually trained to work with people who have specific types of low vision problems. As you know, people with diabetes, people with arthritis, people with Usher's syndrome, may, they may have things that are just much more than just the vision loss alone. They might have neuropathy. They might have difficulties with their mobility because of joint pain. They might have hearing impairment. These people can have a wide variety of different types of problems that affects their entire life. So individual psychological counseling is something that is extremely, extremely helpful. So once you have actually searched out a lot of this different type of information, I think that you're going to then learn strategies that you can implement on a day-to-day -day basis. For many of you, you might then contact the Department of Rehabilitation. Here in California, we find that the State Department of Rehabilitation is extremely helpful. For the working age population, they have been very, very helpful in helping these patients to acquire equipment. Let's say that a person is trying to get a new job and they need to go back to school. And they said, you know, I do want to become a teacher. I'm going to work on my master's degree. 
Well, many times the Department of Rehabilitation can help these students. If they do need a software program that could magnify the computer screen, if they need some magnifiers, or maybe they need a pair of telescopic glasses to see the board, the Department of Rehabilitation can often be very, very helpful. For other adults who are not in their working years, that are retired, they may need help with just performing household activities. Maybe they live alone, or maybe their spouse is ill. Well, the Department of Rehabilitation is very helpful in helping these folks to get different types of visual aids so they can continue to live at home, so that they do not have to go into an assisted living. So the Department of Rehabilitation is another program that is extremely helpful. And for me personally, what I have found, the one thing that I resisted the most, I resisted orientation and mobility training. I just did not want anybody ever to see me with a cane. By using or accepting a cane, it was me giving up. It was almost like saying, I surrender, yes, I am blind. And for many, 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 many months, it was where I didn't want to go places, I missed out on certain types of events, I tried to hide it, and it was so stressful trying to hide it. You know, people would say to June and myself, Oh, you guys are so cute. You guys are always walking together like you guys are going to the prom. She's always grabbing your arm. If only they knew the truth, right? If she wasn't there, I'd be saying, June, where are you? I needed her to help me to get around. So I then decided I need to go ahead. I need to have some orientation mobility. And at this point in time, of all the things that I have actually received training on, I value orientation and mobility the most. You know, I take this cane with me just the way that I used to take my car keys. This has some, been something that's given me the ability to be much more comfortable and much more relaxed. But it also gets back to the point where you could see that for me personally, it was something that I was hiding this and I was hiding myself. I was isolated. I had the attitude that people were going to think of me differently if they knew that I was blind or if I was low vision. I really thought that people would think less of me if I wasn't Dr. Bill Takesh anymore. And what I have learned through this entire experience of going from being fully sighted to being partially sighted to being legally blind and now being totally blind I've experienced all of it and what I could say right now is that life being blind life being low vision it really isn't bad it really is just different and I hope that from today's lecture and from you going to some of these different booths and again visiting the Braille Institutes through errorsla.org you can access the information that you need to empower you. So, thank you very, very much, and at this time, we'll take any questions you may have. Any questions? And, and, and Thank you, that's very kind. And if you do have questions, uh, don't just raise your hand, because we'll be here for a long time then. Okay, are there any questions? Or Steve, maybe you can moderate. Okay, the question is, how do you get in touch with Airs LA? Well, Airs LA, this is a audio internet program. So there's two ways that you could do that. 
One way is that you could use a computer to get onto the internet, and then you go to www.airsla.org. And once you get to that page, there's many different categories. If you want entertainment, we have entertainment such as magazines from Sports Illustrated, Oprah Magazine, Cosmopolitan, Seventeen. We have a lot of entertainment. We also have other types of podcasts that are going to be old radio shows. You know, radio shows from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. There's also a lot of the seminars that the Braille Institute has put on. So if you want to learn about the latest research in macular degeneration or glaucoma or in diabetic retinopathy, there's these types of uh, seminars. So there's a lot, a lot of content on there. And this is something that's it's free. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to put your email or anything. If you don't have a computer, there's another option is that there are things that are called internet radios. And with the internet radio, it's just like a radio, and you might need to have somebody to help you to set up. But with that, you could then have Airs LA and these shows to come onto your radio. Now, a third way is if you have uh, nephews, nieces, kids, grandkids, Anybody who's at least five years old, you know, these kids now, they could get on the computer and they can actually download what is called downloading these shows. And these shows can then be played on these different types of players, like you might have heard of iPods and things like that. The latest iPod Nano, it does have voice. So if you're totally blind, you could listen to it on an iPod Nano and you can then find which seminars and which movies or other shows you want to listen to. A last type of option that you have is that a company called Humanware, they have another type of a, a reader, and this is called the Victor Reader Stream. And this is something that will play your talking books. Let's say that you get books from Bookshare.org or Audible.com. These are companies that do have tons and tons of books and then you could then have these things played on this very small portable player. It's about the size of a deck of cards, and it could play almost every type of book available. Okay? Another question? And the address for that, and I think we handed out cards, but it is www.airsla.org. Okay, so those are there, and again, I encourage you to, I encourage all of you to listen to the Braille Institute series. It's called Sound Solutions. You you you'll get a, a lot of information as to how to do the daily activities. Okay, cooking, the use of contrast, the types of lighting, all kinds of good things there. Okay, the question is, is that she's had cataract surgery. And then she also had to have cornea surgery, and then her eyelid isn't closing all the way. Well, the things that I would recommend is that you do want to be seen by an ophthalmologist who does specialize in the cornea and the eyelid. There's many times that a person, when we sleep, you might, you might look at family members and as they're sleeping, you may notice that their eyes do not completely close. And the front of the eye, the cornea, that will become dry and as it becomes dried out, it gets scar tissue, and that will reduce your vision. So there's a couple of things about that. There are ophthalmic surgeons, 
and these are ophthalmic plastic surgeons who only specialize in the eyelid and many times they could do a very very easy surgery that will help that eyelid to close in the meantime there are different types of eye drops that you might either talk to your doctor about um, one of the recommended drops that I, I might suggest that you ask them about is called Celluvisc C-E-L-L-U-V-I-S-C and this is a very thick drop that you would put in your eye before you go to sleep so it will keep your corneas moist throughout the night you could also use a humidifier in the room and in, in some cases we even tell people that they could actually use a gel but the gel sometimes gets a little bit messy this drop does not have any kind of preservative so it's safe but overall I think the first thing would be to see, let's see if an ophthalmologist who specializes in the cornea could could be helpful and I think that after that you could then benefit from being seen by a low vision optometrist to see if they could improve your vision with these specialized glasses Next. okay and the question is she's part of a HMO so that would be some of the things that you would do you would ask your primary care physician in the HMO to refer you to the specialist yes yeah I think that's very wise I think that's wise if you're able to do things quite well then you don't have to go forward and do different types of surgery on your better seeing eye you have to be very very careful with those sorts of things so I think that's a wise decision everything that you've said so far seems to be uh, um, a type of a decision that is expected in other words the insertion of this particular type of a gold plate in your eyelid to help the eyelid to close that is something that is very commonly done so that sounds like they are doing the right type of treatment for you if they're telling you that you have to do surgery to the left eye you just want to again be careful and maybe at that point in time it might be beneficial to get another opinion from a different type of a doctor okay other questions Yeah, what she is just saying is that, yeah, at UCLA's Jewel Stein Eye Institute, they have specialists that specialize in glaucoma or cataracts or everything. USC has specialists. There's specialists all over the place. But again, as you said, the limitation is, again, your insurance. Okay, any other questions? Okay, that's a very, very good question. And the question, she says, is she had a friend or a, a client who went to a low vision optometrist and the low vision optometrist told the patient that they needed these glasses and the patient said you know I, I spent all this money on these glasses and I really don't see any better how, how should you handle that you should be empowered okay you guys have to take care of your yourself and and you know what's right if you have a doctor who's telling you that you need to buy these glasses or a magnifier or it's going to be a, a computer system or a CCTV or anything else like that if it is something that is not helping you you just have to tell them no this is not helping me thank you very much if the doctor does not show you the difference between your present glasses and what the new glasses are then just ask them can I compare my glasses with the glasses that you're going to be making for me and you could compare that as doctors 
it's very very simple that we can actually put a lens or a couple of lenses over on top of your glasses to show you what the difference is with a new prescription and we will then ask you is this an improvement that's worthwhile to you that you want new glasses if they then say yes then you can go ahead and then expect to get a new pair of glasses if it doesn't help you you just say no another thing is that when you pick up a pair of glasses let's say for example you say well it helps a little bit you then go to pick up these glasses and then you realize I see exactly the same all of these offices I would say almost all of these offices, if they're a professional office they're gonna give you your money back okay the laboratories and the frame companies that do all these things there are warranties on that you can you can actually demand your money back but again you just have to take charge and empower yourself to 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 be responsible and to tell them no just like um, this lady over here who's saying no you're not touching my good eye okay just be strong that way because it's your vision it's your eyes any other questions last question yeah the question is are all of these lights these dangerous lights full spectrum lights and by wearing a visor would that protect your eyes further well the first thing is that all of these fluorescent lights the fluorescent lights are these tubes you know the long tubes and now they do make these small tubes that are swirly and they replace your old conventional type of light bulb those types of bulbs are called fluorescent lights okay and what we do know is that no not all fluorescent lights have that type of full spectrum lighting okay now when it comes down to light bulbs there are many many different things to be looking at at the light bulbs and this is again where your doctor should be helping you with this number one you want to look at how bright is the light bulb how much light do you need if you have diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma or RP you need the light to be as bright as possible so you're going to look for a light that is going to have the highest number of lumens l-u-m-e-n-s you look at lumens on the box you don't look at wattage many people say hey doctor bill i just bought a three hundred watt light bulb and i stuck it up on my ceiling but i still can't read very well well the reason for that is because a three hundred watt light bulb that only tells us how much electricity it's going to cost you it doesn't tell us how much light that's coming out so for example you could buy a compact fluorescent you know one of these new little swirly bulbs that is only a 13 watt light and it's gonna put out more light for you than a 300 watt old type of bulb the second thing then you want to look at is the color depending on each person's eye condition the color is gonna affect whether or not you have headaches you have eye strain you got glare you got all this other kind of problems there okay many people who have cataracts they're gonna be very very bothered by these lights that might be a little bit more bluish white so in those cases we're gonna recommend a light bulb a fluorescent light bulb that's gonna be the reddish white color and that is called a warm white fluorescent when you look at these bulbs there'll be numbers on them and a reddish white bulb will be 2700 degrees Kelvin now this is something that we're we're putting this up on 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 the Airs LA so 
Um, I know it's a lot of information, but for a lot of people, they'll do better with a reddish-white bulb, and that will be a 2,700-degree bulb. Other people will do a little better with something that's a little bit more yellow, and that will be 3,500 degrees Kelvin. Another person might say, you know, I like how it looks when I go inside Vons with these real cheap lights. And then you'll get what they call the cool white bulb. The cool white are those cheap, affordable ones. And that's about 4,100 degrees. Anything that is over 5,000 degrees, 5,000 to 6,000, that is what is called the full spectrum. So if your doctor tells you, I've removed your cataract and we need to protect your eye from the blue and the ultraviolet light, you want to get a fluorescent bulb that is going to be 2,700 degrees, 3,500 degrees, or 4,100 degrees. You don't want one that's going to be 5,000 degrees or older, over. But also, remember, when people get cataract surgery now, when your ophthalmologist is putting an implant into your eye, most of the implants now do filter out the ultraviolet light. So it, it protects you. For people who have not had cataract surgeries, you know, you look at one-year-old, two-year-old little babies and things, are these kids at risk? No, because the natural lens inside the eye filters out the ultraviolet light and the blue light. Okay. And now there are implant lenses for cataract surgery that also filter out the yellow light. A company called Alcon has made a new lens, so if you've had cataract surgery, it will be just like your old natural lens, it will protect your eyes. So for most people, the retina is protected from the ultraviolet and the blue light by the lens that's inside the eye. Now what if you had cataract surgery and the doctor said, you know what, we could not put an implant in your eye and we have to give you, you know, the thicker kinds of glasses or we got to put a contact lens on. Those are the people then that I would say you do need to see your eye doctor to prescribe a little bit more protection. Okay? So the fluorescent lighting and things is something that's very, 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 very helpful. And I, I think that that is something that's very, very important to be looking at. Now people will say, how come I can read so much better when I'm outside in the sunlight and when I buy this full spectrum light that's supposed to be like the sun, I can't read very well. There's these lights that are called OTT O T T lights. And there's another light that's called Verilux light. And these are full spectrum lights, Chroma Lux. They're all full spectrum. And a lot of patients say, you know, I still can't see as well as I do when I go outside. The question is, is it because of the fact that um, it's the color of the bulb is wrong? No, because these full spectrum lights are supposed to be as similar as possible to the sunlight. The difference is the sun is a whole heck of a lot brighter. So in that case, we need a light that's going to be having more lumens, something that's going to be much, much brighter. So you want to then speak to your rehabilitation teacher. And here at the Braille Institute, I know that at Braille in the stores, they do have the compact fluorescent bulbs to replace in your lamps and things like that of, of the different temperatures. Okay, So if you want one that's going to be a little reddish, white, and so here just real quick and then I'll, I'll, I'll end okay um, if you're trying to look good in your bathroom or you're trying to put on makeup 
if you're getting a compact fluorescent light, you want one that's going to be a little bit reddish. So get the one that's going to be 2,700 degrees. That will make your, your, your skin look really, really nice. Yeah. <laughs> if, you are, if you are trying to put more light in your closet so that you could differentiate your, your blue socks from your black socks, then you want to go with a light that's going to have a little bit higher temperature. Okay, Something that might have 4,100 degrees. And there are other types of light bulbs, but uh, we won't get into that right now. But there's other types of light bulbs called halogen light bulbs that might be a little bit better if you're trying to differentiate your colors in your closet or if you're going to be painting. If you're an artist and you need to differentiate the colors, you want to look for a halogen bulb. And with that, you usually want one that's going to have a temperature of 4,700 degrees. Okay, so if I, I know this is kind of boring for a lot of you, and um, so you could give me a call if you have some specific questions. I give you my my phone number to the Center for the Partially Sighted, so you could give me a call at any time and I could answer any of those questions. So thank you very much for your attention, and and just have a good attitude. <laughs> thank you.